Hey everyone, you're listening to Things of Interest. I'm Serena Chen. And I'm Sophia Franks. Today we're going to talk about government. Now here in New Zealand, we're about to vote for one in September. And chances are, wherever you are, a vote is coming up for you too. Now politics, as we all know, is no sexy topic. In fact, it's become an unspoken rule of etiquette, not to even mention it around friends and family. But political representation affects everyone through every single fabric of our lives. What schools we get to go to, how much our food costs, whether we can hope to climb the socioeconomic ladder or whether we're just stuck trying to survive. So let's let's talk about it. Let's talk about government. Let's talk about political representation. Let's talk about it as boring and uninteresting as the subject might be. But before we talk about the ins and outs of what a government is, should be, and could be, let's briefly cover how they get there in the first place. Sophia, tell us a little about casting our vote. So the election that's coming up in September is a national election in New Zealand, where because New Zealand has a good proportional representation, we have a particular voting system called MMP, so Mixed Member Proportional. And this means we get two votes. We get one vote for who we want to represent us in our electorate, and we get one vote for the party that we want to be in government. And so you'll find people, they might vote for the same party-affiliated people for both of them. You might find that they split their vote. So a lot of people who are more left-leaning will split their vote Labour-Green, so they'll vote for their Labour representative, but the Green Party. And that's, I think, an excellent voting system. Mm -hmm. Uh, I currently live in Australia where they have single transferable votes. So for each election, you number all of the people that you like in order of preference. So if you like the One Nation senator or member of parliament, because Australia is bicameral, whereas New Zealand's unicameral, um, you number them one, two, three, four, five, just on and on and on and on. And if the person you vote for first doesn't get enough votes, then your vote counts for the person you listed second, and then your vote counts for the person you listed third, and so on and so forth. The other main difference between Australia and New Zealand is that New Zealand only has one house. So we have one parliament, it makes the laws, it does its thing, it has a speaker and the prime minister and everything's in there. Whereas Australia has two houses, so we have the uh, lower one and the upper one, which is the Senate. I forget the proper name of the lower one. Um, This sort of means that there's more checks and balances, so the Australian system is more like the UK, it's more like... um, America particularly, because the UK has the uh, lower house and then the House of Lords, uh, and the US has the Congress and the Senate. And this basically means there's more checks and balances on laws that are coming through, on budgets that get put forward by the government. It essentially means like governments have to compromise to get what they want a lot of the time, particularly if they don't hold a majority in both the House and the Senate. And that's an interesting thing. It can result in some very interesting choices being made. The other thing that's pretty important to be aware about Australia and New Zealand is that because our head of state is still the Queen, there is a situation where, and I'm just going to double check what this is actually called. So, yes, the 1975 Australian Constitutional Crisis. The Governor-General, if 
they don't think the government is working or they think the government is doing like specifically bad things for the country, they can just be like, you know what? Goodbye, government. We're having a new election. And this happened in Australian history. Uh, and it can happen, I think, in Australia if the Senate and the House don't agree on things and so essentially can't get laws through. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that the governor general can then step in and be like, we're not just like not having laws for the next three years. We're having an election right now. I don't think that's ever happened in New Zealand, but I think it's something to be aware of whenever and discussions come up fairly regularly about New Zealand being a republic or Australia being a republic is like there is still that key thing that can occur even if it doesn't occur very often, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So like I'm hesitant of calling it necessary. I think any sensible government, if they can't get laws through, would just be like guess we're having another election. And this would also, like, never happen in New Zealand, right? Because we only have one house. Mm. Like, the reason it happened in Australia is that the House and the Senate couldn't agree on anything. And so the Governor-General was like, goodbye, government, we're getting a new one. Whereas in New Zealand, because we only have one house, and essentially, like, you always have to be able to form a majority because of that, and also to an extent because we have an um, uneven number of seats in Parliament, you're always going to have the ability to pass bills. Oh, that was a lot. Um, <laughs> I still want to. I want to keep talking. I'm really excited about this. The best thing I think about MMP, well, the most interesting thing I think about MMP is it means our government, parliament, like the number of MPs we have, isn't always the same. So there's um 121 seats in New Zealand Parliament. I think I should have got all the Wikipedia pages for this up before I uh started. Yeah, we can research on the way because like I feel like I have a lot of things to read as well. <laughs> okay. There are 119 seats. I think I think when I went for a tour around Parliament, there was 121 that year. In order for a party to get a seat in the House, they need 5% of the party vote or they need to win an electorate. There are more than 20 electorates in New Zealand, mm-hmm. which means uh, sometimes, for example, if you are Peter Dunn, you will win an electorate and you won't get 5% of the party vote. And this is how Winston Peters kept getting into Parliament for some time. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry about Tauranga. I couldn't vote during that period of time, so I just feel guilty about it constantly. I believe that's how Peter Dunn continues to get his seat, and by all accounts, like his electorate absolutely loves him. I think that's how David Seymour got his seat. Uh, and that means that instead of always being the same size you can get expansion of the house, which means you can get really interesting uh, government dynamics. And I think it's absolutely fascinating that essentially every time we vote, we don't know how many people will be in the house. (laughs) I think the other really wonderful thing about uh, MMP, particularly in like New Zealand's system, is that we have the uh, electorates and the Māori electorates. And the Māori electorates basically ensure that there's always Māori representation in Parliament. Whereas in Australia, people like go crack the shits about you know having more than three indigenous australians in parliament and and so having that enshrined protection for modern representation basically saying there will always be seven apparently so there's 71 electorates they're made up from 64 general and seven maori electorates which is i mean still not that high but uh, sure, I guess. <laughs> but having like it enshrined in yeah. the way we vote, I think, is very important, and it's something that like other countries just don't 
have. Like you might remember the incredible fuss that was made when Justin Trudeau put an Indigenous Canadian, like a First Nations Canadian, on his um. I think they were one of his cabinet members. And it's just like, what is happening? This is amazing. And it's like, well, yeah. And like, it's as many feelings as I have about Winston Peters. He's a Māori man who has been in Parliament for like literally as long as I can remember. Like my entire life, except for like those three years when he wasn't in, which was like a blissful release. <laughs> he's a Māori man who's had this incredible political career. Like there are a whole bunch of other examples of that. Like the man on a fifty dollar bill, so Afiranata is like the first Māori MP, I believe. Like we have this enshrined in how we vote. We have this saying like Māori people's votes matter. They can vote for people who they want to represent them. And like seven seats in a parliament of 120 doesn't sound like a lot, but when you consider like there's something like 400 people in the United States Congress, like that's ridiculous. Like in New Zealand, our votes matter comparatively so much more than in any other country. And so to have those seven seats just like put aside and saying like, no, these are for the indigenous people because they are important and their voices are important. While New Zealand has its issues, and like, I certainly don't mean to lessen the issues, and like, we'll talk about this, um, I think, a lot during this episode. Like, the issues that Māori people have in representation and in actually being treated like equals, like, New Zealand does it so much better than literally anywhere else. Yeah, it's all like a relative. Thing, even though we have a long ways to go and even though we have a lot more to, that we can improve on compared to the rest of the world hurrah <laughs> yeah. yeah we're so used to having Māori people in parliament it's not weird for us to have them along the entire spectrum like political spectrum if that makes sense so like we have Winston Peters we have Materia Ture we have like this huge range of Indigenous New Zealanders who have this incredible breadth of like political affiliations, whereas there was an example of like a um, young Indigenous gay man who was standing for the Liberals in Australia really recently, the Liberals being the least liberal party. That's um, confusing. And there was like this huge backlash against it, being like, how could he, as an Indigenous gay man, align himself with them? And it's like, because he affiliates himself with their political beliefs, clearly. Like, that's how he's not like yeah anyway there was like some very iffy kind of like race traitor rhetoric coming predominantly from white people and it just was super gross mm. yeah i've i've met that um young man as well and like while i don't agree with his political beliefs and like find it kind of weird that a gay man would affiliate themselves with a political party that is like not really into gay marriage like say marriage equality it's fine People can have their own political beliefs, even if I don't agree with them. And I think better representation is better, regardless of whether it's right-wing or left-wing, right? Like, we want to have a representative democracy and to say, oh, no, it can't be representative if it's not people, like, if it's people I don't agree with is, like, really shitty. Yes, there does uh, seem to be a kind of pigeonholing that tends to happen. And I think it started to happen more and more. Like, if you go back in history, I don't think it was such a thing to have your things like sexual orientation, things uh, like ethnicity, things like racial background, things like gender even, to have anything to do with the left or the right, in air quotes. 
And I think back then it was it was more I mean, from what I understand, the further back in time you go, the further back in history you go, the idea of the left versus right was all about how big should this government be and how much should we tax people. And everything else was kind of up in the air. It seems that as we move to the modern age, things that are a part of our identity, things that have to do with who we are and what we believe in are... I don't know, they, they've become more strongly tied to the left or the right. They've become more politicized, which is why you get this whole, like, people yelling out, you're a race traitor if you're a person of color who is a conservative. Or it's, it's so strange, and I'm not sure if this is a good thing or a bad thing. I'm leaning on the side of thinking that it's a bad thing, that we've so intricately tied our identities with a point on the political spectrum. Because now it's like the fight is personal rather than academic. Do you know what I mean? So I understand where you're coming from. But I think also one of the reasons the shift has occurred is that back in the day, government was only white men. That is a really good point. So now we actually have diversity of identities and people are starting like... Mm. Essentially, if government was still only white men, identity politics probably wouldn't come into it because they're just like these pieces of blank cardboard or mild cheese that like discuss ideas rather than like tying that into their <laughs> identities. But yeah. realistically, those ideas were things that affect people's identities. Like, sure, like two white straight men can discuss academically about marriage equality or access to birth control or like whether something is against the spirit of the treaty or not, but they're never going to be affected by that. And that like to an extent allows them to argue about that more academically, but I don't know if that makes for better laws. And I don't think it does. No, that's, that's actually such a great point. And you're completely right. Like, I guess that's the reason the further back in time we go, the the more bland and the more same, same, samey the people in power are. And now as we progress, like back then, people of color, people who have different sexual orientations, people who have uh, non-binary gender identities or different gender identities, like all of the spectrum of people, we still all existed back then. We just didn't have a voice. I guess now because politics affects everything and because it has affected minorities so differently. We can't really stop it from being so intricately tied to the political spectrum. I'd like, I'd rather have politicians arguing about issues that personally affect me. If those issues also personally affect them. Yes. Representation matters. Well, and I mean like, that's why a lot of the discussions surrounding um, the benefit in New Zealand has been so charged recently because mm. um, where Materia Ture uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think now, spoke about the fact that she basically committed benefit fraud because the benefit doesn't give you enough money to live on. And that has been incredibly galvanizing to a lot of people I know who have been on the benefit or do still require to be on the benefit just because they're like, okay, I have people in parliament who are in my corner, who know what this is like, who understand like how shitty it feels to be in a position where you basically have to lie to someone to get enough money to live yeah and like in my very brief experiences with wins like it's horrifying like it's really really awful to go through that process and you're treated like 
the worst possible human that ever existed simply because you're in a position where you don't have a job. There's a lot of shame that's baked into the whole process. I'm not even sure how to describe it. Like the just the attitude that you're spoken to with. You are spun some yarns at wins. Like the time I went, they told me that benefit fraud was the new reason New Zealand had national debt. And I was like, seems unlikely. No. <laughs> In the scale Seems of things, like maybe tax fraud is. Yeah, in the scale <laughs> like, of things, benefit fraud is next to nothing. I think there's a there's another problem in the rhetoric in that, like, when you say benefit fraud costs New Zealand what two mil something per year, I'm just taking a stab in the dark. That sounds like a lot, but people don't quite understand how much money is involved when you're talking about an entire country of 4.5 million people. You know what? Let me look up the tax fraud New Zealand. Okay, well here's a here's an article from Radio NZ. Welfare fraud is around about 30 million. Again, sounds like a lot. Tax evasion at least 1 billion. Yep. That sounds about right. Yep. And the thing with benefit fraud is that it's easier to catch than tax evasion. It's easier to vilify than tax evasion. The discussion around this topic has really got me down. It's got me down. It just how much people have vilified the poor and how much talk there is around the quote-unquote deserving and undeserving poor. People keep talking about the working poor versus the non-working poor. I'm not even sure where to start with this. Here's a summary. It's bad. It's bad. It's a bad take. <laughs> I want to say the words it's hurtful, but that doesn't really summarize. It doesn't really encompass how cold and detached these comments are and how much how much we've dehumanized the people who don't have money, essentially. And even if we talk about it in a cold and detached way, it's just it's an overly simplistic way of approaching the problem. People can't control things like illness when we have like relatively restricted access to things like birth control. Like poor people can't necessarily impact like whether they're going to get pregnant or not. Like mm. people can't change things that have occurred to them. People can't, if they don't have capital, they can't alter where they live. And to, to say to someone in like, um, Somewhere like Hawke's Bay, somewhere like the Manawa too. These are the places that have had the most negative employment growth by region, which I'm getting from that book that you gave me. Growing Apart, Regional Prosperity in New Zealand. Good book. To say to those people, oh, it's kind of your fault because you live somewhere, is like, well, we don't have access to, firstly, the ability to move. Yeah. But secondly, like, just because we live somewhere doesn't mean you're a bad person. Like, I think a lot of this points to fundamentally how segregated New Zealand society is. And segregation isn't really a thing that comes up when you talk about New Zealand society, is it? But we are. We're completely segregated in terms of socioeconomic status. There was a poll, I want to say a couple of years back, um, that polled national voters, national being the right-leaning main party in New Zealand politics. They polled national voters and they found that 70% of national voters did not know a single person who was unemployed, which just goes to show how insular these communities on the different rungs of the socioeconomic ladder have become. Because it's like, if you live your entire life in your nice upper middle class bubble, full of your 
upper middle class friends who have the same problems, who don't think about the same things, then the idea of someone not having a choice whether to have a baby at a certain time, not having a choice what kind of job they have if they can get one at all, not having a choice where they live and what condition they live, not having a choice whether to stay with family or not, that just doesn't compute. And it becomes very apparent when like, um, you start reading a bunch of the discussion on the internet around Materia Ture's, uh story is just a lot of people saying, hey, like, well, if you can't afford a child, why did you have one? As if she had choice. Um, some others saying, well, if you couldn't afford it, why don't you just put off law school? As if the poor should not have an education? Yeah. And that's just like, why don't you entrench your own poverty? Yeah. Like, the thing that frustrates me the most is that Someone lying to winds to feed their child and themselves to survive to the tune of not much money at all, it doesn't impact any of these people. It doesn't impact you or me. 30 million sounds like a lot, but it's actually nothing in the full scale of things. Yeah. The ability to take that hit and the ability to support people properly, and just like, this is one of the things that absolutely shits me when people talk particularly about young mums it's like why do we support them it's like okay well firstly termination pregnancy isn't actually legal in new zealand no we kind of have this rhetoric that like oh it's really easy to get it's absolutely not people who apply for terminations of pregnancies like do not get it in new zealand Hmm. like that's a huge issue there are a lot of people who don't live near enough to hospitals to be able to travel and get that there's like very little access to it in some regions secondly the fact that like there aren't that high standards for housing, which I'm sure you know intimately as someone who's also lived in Dunedin. Yeah. But when you have <laughs> poor people in Otago Southland, when you have poor people on the West Coast, when you have unemployed people in those areas, they have to get the housing they can afford. The housing they can afford will make them sick, which means they can't work for even longer. Like, that sucks as well. And then you get to the point where, like, when a child is raised in a house – that where they're getting sick all the time, where they don't necessarily have access to books because apparently, like, the unemployment benefit, the child support payments that you get from the government, that you can get from the government if you're lucky, if you prove that you need it, they don't extend to things like actually educating your child. They don't extend to things like making sure your child has the best start in life, which means we just get this incredible entrenchment of poverty. And New Zealand has this, like, weird belief about itself that, like, there is the ability to be socially mobile. Like, yeah, you can definitely go from being poor to being upper middle class because everyone gets to go to, like, university. And it's like, okay, sure. We have, like, a system where it is, particularly when you compare it to countries like the US or Australia or even, like, a lot of Europe, it's relatively easy to go to university in New Zealand. But if you've been sick, like, basically your entire life, because you've lived in cold and damp homes, if you've never had access to, like, books or extracurricular activities or anything that would stimulate your mind, you're not necessarily going to make the choice to go to university, because that might not seem like something that would be good for you. And it just absolutely shits me that people act like this poverty cycle, like, this entrenchment of poverty, the fact that, like, people don't have access to resources they need, like, and that we don't do things like... When talking about poverty, when talking about benefit fraud, we don't do things like talk about domestic partner violence as well. Realistically, a lot of women who are unemployed, who have young children, 
who are in abusive relationships, whether that's emotional, financial, or physical abuse, the unemployment benefit isn't enough to get them out of that. I'm so angry about how we treat poor people in New Zealand. I'm <laughs> Can you tell? Devastated. No. That anger is completely righteous. I'm at a point where like I'm struggling to find words to express my frustration because it's a frustration on different levels. It's like, okay, from just like a I am a human surrounded by other humans level, the most like fundamental lizard brain level you could get to, it's frustrating because it's like this is another human being who is struggling and they did what you probably would do in their situation to get by. And the fact that so many people cannot empathize with that is frustrating, I guess, is the word I'll pick. The fact that the system set up by the government ostensibly to support these people, in fact, make it as difficult as it possibly can be to get that support i understand that to an extent right like you want to make sure that people who really need access to that money who really need access to the services provided by wins get access to it but it ignores the fact that unemployment has often a huge negative impact on your mental health yeah yeah it does the next level is that people think people have a choice we're we're in this weird kind of society where ever since i stepped foot in new zealand children and my peers and people of every walk of life have been saying to me the words it's a free country and the idea that we have choice in every part of our life is so ingrained to us from childhood that I think it's dangerous it's dangerous because the fact is a lot of us don't have that choice and when you're surrounded by like the same upper middle class people dealing with I mean I'm not saying the problems aren't real but the problems are different right the that you have to deal with day to day you don't see the lack of choice that comes with poverty that comes with not having enough money and on that level it's frustrating because people don't understand the paradox of choice that we have in this country and on even a purely academic level even if you were to be like hey i don't actually care about people i just want like a like a country that runs well, um, I just want economic success, that's all I care about. Even if that's all you care about, it's still frustrating because lifting people out of poverty, guess what? That gives you more workers. Lifting people out of poverty gives you suddenly all these people who have money to spend, to buy things, to invest in things, to work. They suddenly have time to contribute to society. They suddenly don't have to worry about a roof over their heads and food on the table. And that's better for the entire country, just purely looking at economics. And most of the time, the people vilifying the poor are those with purely economic arguments. So it's it's a frustration on every different level. The other thing... Um, that you mentioned was that the welfare program, while we have better welfare than somewhere like the US, it is still quite horrible. And I'm, I was reading about how when um, they were first looking at the welfare program and looking at how much people need, how much money does someone need to live? Just completely no frills, going to buy the the cheapest food i'm going to live and rent in the cheapest place no frills like how much money do people need to live per week they got that number and they set the benefit slightly less than that and they did that because they thought hunger would motivate poor people to find jobs oh 
good. Which is really rich coming from people who have never gone hungry. And when when talking about poverty, I, 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 just, I just have no words. When my family first came to New Zealand, we lived under the poverty line for quite a while. And the only way we got out of it, the only reason was because we were lucky. That is it. We were lucky because my mum and dad, they were able to borrow a large sum of money to buy a dairy. And they've all paid that back now. It's all done and dusted. But it's easy to look at a loan and be like, oh, you know, whatever, that was just a loan. I've paid that back. That's cool. But if we didn't have that, if we didn't have that essentially money that was unconditional, like it didn't require us to work a certain hours per week. It didn't require us to fill some kind of quota. It didn't it didn't require anything of us except to pay it back sometime in the future. Like if it wasn't for that lump sum, I don't know where we would be. I don't know if we would still be in New Zealand. And the thing is, the easiest way you can solve poverty, the easiest way you can live people up out of poverty, the easiest way is to just give them unconditional money. And there have been tested cases, and I don't mean like simulated cases on a computer. I mean, people have gone out in the world and done this, and it has been incredibly successful. Just something like a one-off payment of $400, here you go, no conditions, has been successful in lifting like entire families out of poverty because they didn't have to worry about surviving for a week. And there have been a bunch of studies done on how when you're below the poverty line, you just cannot think in the long term. No, you can't. And like, even now, like I'm on a PhD stipend, which puts me all below the poverty line. I just catch myself doing that sometimes. And I have to be yeah. like, okay, no, like I, <laughs> like I understand the concept that I'm trying to go for here, but I do mm. actually need to say. And it's, it's different even then because it's like it's like while we're studying we might be below the poverty line but we we have a safety net in that we've got family yeah no i'm well aware of how lucky i am in that instance like my my parents heavily supported me through uni and i will probably never stop being grateful for that <laughs> yeah and i guess what i'm trying to say is that like the people who are affected by this, you know, just so people can understand and empathize and try and understand like what kind mm. of position they're in is that it's not just how much income they have. It's that that's it. That's all they have. They can't rely on parents, family, friends, because their parents, their family, their friends are in the same situation of just scraping by, just surviving, just waiting for that next paycheck, just seeing like how much does this money, like how many potatoes and rice can I buy essentially? And that's something that a lot of New Zealanders just don't get. I'm not sure how to explain this to people without sounding like a like a righteous asshole. Like, I'm not trying to say you're a bad person, person that I'm talking to at a bar <laughs> about tax and poverty. What I'm trying to say is that you live, you have lived a completely different life. And to really build a country that's best for everyone, that's going to be better for upper middle class people like you and me, to do that, we have to support our poor. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think there needs to be more constructive discussion, like mm. obviously surrounding poor people, but I think particularly surrounding things like addiction. 
because often those are things that disproportionately affect poor people. So often the argument that's made, particularly for things like um, supermarket cards, as opposed to giving people actual money, because apparently paternalistic policies have always worked. We need to talk about things like community support, about accessible support, about like just smoking, drinking, gambling disproportionately affect people on the benefit, people below the poverty line, because they don't have disposable income and so any addiction would affect them more and to not have well-structured community support for that I think is like kind of a failure of the state it's just gone well poor people have this problem so good luck I guess (laughs) when you end up like stealing to support your addiction we'll arrest you thanks bye this is what's so problematic with the whole discourse around the deserving and undeserving poor. Like, if you're poor, but, you know, you're trying to get a job, you're working two, three jobs here and there, and, you know, you're getting by, you're a law-abiding citizen, you don't do anything wrong, you don't break the law, you don't do any drugs, you don't drink any alcohol, you are a saint who is just not paid a lot, then <laughs> the state will support you, the public will support you. But as soon as you take a drink, as soon as you fall into substance abuse, as soon as as soon as you even commit benefit fraud, as soon as you do anything to taint your 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 saintly poor status, then suddenly all of society is like, hey, fuck you. Like, you don't deserve to live anymore. And this is the the dialogue that we really need to change because this is what's preventing us from implementing the policies that work, which is essentially unconditional money. And it's kind of similar to, um, I want to say it was in uh, Utah. There was a small experiment that was run in which the city basically just gave homeless people houses because there were a lot of houses that were being defaulted on. They had a lot of empty houses and there was a sizable homeless population. So they just gave homeless people houses and essentially sold homelessness for for that time that they had houses. And it's like, wow, who would have thought that giving homeless people houses without condition would solve that problem? And it's the same, it's the same thing. It's like, who would have thought that giving poor people money unconditionally would solve a lot of problems. This has been done all around the world and has been shown to work extremely, incredibly effectively. Why aren't we doing it? Why are we still vilifying the poor? Why aren't we vilifying those people who earn more than 200k a year evading tax? Why Why is the narrative so different and how do we reshape this narrative? And what we have in New Zealand is emergency housing that generally has a no visitors policy. There was... A story from uh, Auckland Action Against Poverty um, on the 9th of July um, that has this quote, which I'm just going to read out. I was told that I had to accept emergency housing at either Strive or Emerge Aotearoa. Both of these MSE contracted places have a no visitors policy. I believe this policy is dehumanizing and degrading and that just because I am homeless, I have not relinquished my right to have contacts with friends and family. I need to maintain contact with my family in particular because my sister committed suicide 14 months ago, and that remains very difficult to cope with. I previously experienced depression. This refusal to provide social housing is extremely distressful, but I am determined to retain my dignity and self-respect. I am not a second class because I am homeless. The juxtaposition of those two is so slightly horrifying. The fact that, like, essentially if people want to access emergency housing, they have to say, you can't have support networks. And that's the wrong way to do that. Like, so much of this just confuses me. Like, it seems like it's very, very obvious. Like, people need to have access to their support networks. People need to have access to money because, like, so many of jobs rely on the interview. And if you can't have, like, a haircut or, like, look 
good and clean and well-pressed for a job interview, you're not going to get a job. This, oh, it makes so little sense to me. It really frustrates me. It almost seems as if the people writing this legislation don't actually care about fixing the problem. Because with every quote-unquote solution, with every quote-unquote safety net that we have for people who are in need, there's a punishment that comes along with it. That includes the lack of visitors, that includes the just slightly not enough per week grant that you get for food. That includes saying, hey, this money comes with conditions. Yeah. So this episode was going to be about government. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I just have a lot of feelings about poverty. (laughs) I'm, yeah. So we're going to take a 180 in terms of theme. Um, And I'm going to talk a little bit about Section 44 in the Australian government, because this has been incredible to watch happen. As a New Zealand citizen, I have to do overseas voting and I can't vote in Australian elections despite the fact that I'm resident here, which I'm fine with. Like, I don't need a part of this garbage fire, to be (laughs) honest. But there's a section in the Australian Constitution, yeah, Australian Constitution, that says you cannot be a citizen of another country if you want to be in Parliament, in the Senate. You just cannot be a citizen of another country. You can only be a citizen of Australia. And this section was sort of originally designed to protect from traitors and criminals and fraudsters. Fine. One of the Green MPs relatively recently discovered he was actually still a New Zealand citizen and so was ineligible to be in Parliament. And he had to step down from his position. And this kicked off a number of people realising that they are actually still technically citizens of other countries. Which initially, like, hit the Greens pretty hard, because, like, clearly they were the ones that, like, checked themselves before they wrecked themselves too hard. One of the senators from a very similar to New Zealand first, but less nice, might still have British citizenship. There have been liberal um, people who might still have citizenship of other countries who are having to now check and might have to stand down. It is incredible. They are falling like dominoes. It is the most beautiful thing in the world to watch. Yes. No, there's um, a liberal member for Chisholm who might still have Greece citizenship. And it's just a lot of these countries that don't drop the citizenship if you're only born there or something like that. So Malcolm Roberts, for example, was born in India at, during the period of time that anyone born in India was automatically given Indian citizenship. So that'll be interesting if he ends up being an Indian citizen as well as an Australian one. It's very outdated, particularly considering, like, Australia is so multicultural and, like, apparently that's something we're proud about, but nothing in the legislation really supports that. It's so, so wonderful, but also slightly horrifying to watch this very backwards-looking section of their constitution start to just, like, mean that parliamentarians can't be there anymore. Wow, so so this um, this new law, it just... It's an old law. It's a very old law. Okay. Which is why people didn't notice. Right. Um, <laughs> section 44 is, like, often broadly ignored until someone brings it up. Right. And then when someone does, it's like, uh-oh, <laughs> oops, I'm a citizen of somewhere else. Uh, it's kind of beautiful. Yeah. I'm very glad that New Zealand doesn't have something like that. Like, I think... Well, if it's such an old law, like, are there discussions around removing it, amending it? I don't know. So the party that was hit hardest by this Mm -hmm. has been the Greens. Mm -hmm. 
Which might mean that nothing gets done about it, oh, basically, because right. no one, except for almost everyone between the ages of 18 and 25, cares about the Greens in Australia. It's... They're also, like... I really like the New Zealand Greens Party. I think they're wonderful, and I think they have a lot of very good policies, if sometimes a little bit misguided. Uh, the <laughs> Australian Greens Party regularly does very counterproductive things. Mm. I think that's possibly because... The way MMP works is, like, it really encourages coalitions and support between parties, whereas historically Australia hasn't really had to have coalitions, hasn't really had to have supply and demand agreements when it comes to passing bills through Parliament, so they're not really used to supporting each other. And Labour definitely treats the Greens as a threat, and the Greens give as good as they get, which on one hand is, like, hilarious to watch as a foreigner, but on the other <laughs> hand I think makes them look quite bad and petty sometimes. Ah, uh, yes. When they could rise above. I really enjoy uh, a lot of the MPs and candidates and senators for the Green Party. Uh, often that's kind of where scientists end up, so I like spending time with them, but they are kind of the party that no one cares that much about, which means because this is Section 44 is predominantly hit the Green Party, everyone might be like, oh, well... Silly Greens made another mistake. I think it might just be because I'm in a Wellington liberal bubble. Uh, <laughs> but it seems to me, <laughs> seems to me, given my bias and everything, that the Greens in New Zealand have started becoming, in the last few election cycles, a more quote-unquote legitimate party. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they've taken like a very practical stance towards the environment and the economy. And while they, they started from like a purely environmental perspective, they've got a lot of really great policies, I think, and really pragmatic policies about a whole bunch of different things. Yeah, it's just sometimes they say things like the um the immigration policy, which I don't know if it's still their current policy, where they were like, we'll just cap immigration entirely. And it's like, yeah. would you? Hang on. Is that the best idea? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always... Uh, I need to think of a word that's not the word frustrating. <laughs> Certainly in the, uh, the last Australian election, there's a group called the Science Party who are mostly men, and I am not a fan of them because when I sort of, I asked them during the election, I was like, so where are the women? What is your policy with regards to increasing women? You have like two of 30 people standing that are women. This isn't good enough considering the problem that science as a whole has. And they firstly like got real defensive and they were just like, but the Green Party is really white. And it's like, I mean, it is, that's a separate problem. Yeah. I'm asking about your women. You have diversity in race. That's really cool. They are men. <laughs> they also didn't have that much diversity in race, so whatever. I really dislike the Science Party in Australia. They've been very rude to me, and I think they are generally... They alienate people who don't already buy into them. They've also done a few things where it's been kind of like... They've tried to appear non-partisan, but mm. as they are literally a scientific... Uh, literally a political party... They cannot be nonpartisan, <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, and that concerns me a lot. Yeah, they're using the whole science thing as a piece of rhetoric rather than. Yeah, well, I mean, they went to like the science march and organized it, and we're like, this is nonpartisan. Also, we're the science party, and it's like that's not <laughs> how the word nonpartisan. I don't think you understand what words mean. Like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna organize a labor march and be like, this is nonpartisan. Uh... Also, this is the labor march. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All no, the, of that to say, New Zealand politics is objectively better than Australian politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the Greens have got some really cool people uh, running this year. 
Chloe Swarbrick being one of them, she ran for the Auckland mayoral race. She's basically New Zealand's Mary Black, isn't she? Who is Mary Black? Uh, not like that. It's spelled M-H-A-I-R-I. Um, she is the youngest Scottish politician. She is... When she was elected in May 2015, she was 20 years and 237 days old. Nice. She is incredible. She's a... I think she's... I don't want to get the city wrong. I think she's representing a region of Glasgow. And she's from, like, a working class background and is, like, really hardcore and just excellent. Like, just a very good time. I wonder what New Zealand's youngest serving MP is. I'm not sure, but she is 23 and she will most likely get in. New Zealand's youngest MP is Todd Barclay of the National Party, which I really should have been able to guess. <laughs> Who's that guy? Uh, he did some silly things in oh, Southland recently. he did do some silly things. No, you're right. I have heard of this guy. Specifically for the silly things. Uh, the current youngest MP in Australia is a guy who is 32. <laughs> Woo! Actually, this is a pretty good segue into another topic that I'd really like to cover, which is the youth vote, or should I say, the youth (sighs) non-vote. Yes. I think not uh, young people often don't vote because they feel notably disenfranchised with the system, which is totally fair enough, but also if you don't vote, the system will never change. So (laughs) get it together, homies. (laughs) Do you think with the likes of Chloe Swarbrick and hopefully her leading the way, hopefully seeing more uh, younger MPs, do you think that would engage the youth? Hey, Todd Barclay was, you know, he's only 27 now. Like, mm-hmm. he might have done some silly things, but he might engage the youth as well. <laughs> um, I hope so. So Australia has compulsory voting. What does that mean? So it means if you don't vote, you get fined. Right. How much do you get fined? Like, not very much. Like, penalty for first-time offenders is $20, and this increased to 50 Sometimes pe- Australians who are living overseas just don't vote in elections and pay the fine. In New Zealand, you have to be enrolled to vote, but it's not compulsory to vote. So I think the penalty for not being enrolled is, like, more in the region of $200, mm-hmm. which I'm going to look up now. If you don't enroll to vote, yeah, you can be fined $100. This goes up to $200 if you've been fined once and you still don't enroll. I think these are two different ways to approach the same problem. The problem being, like, you want to have a representative democracy and that requires people to vote. Unfortunately, making people enroll to vote, like, gives you some really cool demographics about your country, really in-depth information about everyone, you know where everyone is for a census, but... It doesn't mean that people vote, and if people are particularly disenfranchised with the government, if there's no one that really excites them, if they feel like the two parties are basically the same, which I think is often a complaint in New Zealand, they're like, Labour and National are not that different, which I think if you give them a brief glance, like, yeah, fair enough. Also, Labour's really boring right now, they need to get their act together. They just wouldn't. And while I don't think that's a good choice, I understand why that choice is made. Yeah. Uh, and I think this particularly affects young people because, like, when you're 18, 19, 20, you don't necessarily see how the government affects your lives. You don't necessarily feel like they're representing you or talking about issues that affect you particularly. Yeah. And also, I mean, just from your story about Section 44, legislation is thick and boring and dense and just not that exciting. And it's hard to pass. I remember when I was first eligible to vote, I was like, okay, cool. Yay, I can vote now. I'm going to go and I'm going to like read all the party's policies. And I got through maybe like half because it was just so boring. (laughs) 
It kind of harks back to like a few episodes ago when we were talking about how it's hard to sustain journalism in the age of the internet because people want exciting clickbaity headlines rather than good dense journalism. So there is that. A lot of the arguments I get from friends who don't vote is that a there is a lack of a no confidence choice which I fully agree with I'm totally on board putting a no confidence option in there just so you can not voting is not a way to make your voice heard it's a way to be silent and when you look at how many people don't vote you can't assume they all are unhappy that's not something you can assume you just assume that they all haven't voted that's the only conclusion you can come to but if there is a no confidence choice then you can see oh, these people didn't show up to vote. Maybe they were busy on the day. Maybe they just didn't get there. Maybe they don't care enough. But the people who actually care enough to show up to the polls and choose no confidence, like you can you can get a gauge on citizen dissatisfaction, essentially. And I think that's important. But that's a, I don't think that's a reason not to vote, though. And even if you go to the poll and spoil your vote, that still counts as a no vote. So... The best thing you can do, and this is like a really, it's not a satisfying solution, which is why I can see it's its hard to sell to those who don't vote, but the best thing that we can do is choose the lesser of evils, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Like, there are some things that the Green Party have in their policies that I don't agree with. The stuff around vaccinations, for one, but I will probably <laughs> vote for them because I agree with them the most, or I disagree with them the least. Well, essentially you prioritise what's most important to you. Exactly. But basically you say, I'm willing to make these concessions surrounding your policy on vaccinations because I think the environment is important. Or I think your economic policy is great. You know, I I agree with these things more than other things, or I prioritise these things. Or maybe I don't even agree with those things more, but perhaps maybe I disagree with another party more. Maybe I think another party has more dangerous policies that I would rather go with the other. So it's not a satisfying solution, but it's the best we've got. And it makes a difference. Like it's hard to sell to people because people are happy when you've got like right choice, wrong choice. You pick the right choice. Everything is great now. It's (laughs) less nice to say, hey, this is a bucket of shit. You have to dig through it and find the the piece with the least amount of shit on it. It's going to have shit on it, right? Whatever you choose, whatever you find, there's going to be shit on it, but it will be less shit. And that makes a difference, essentially. Like, it might not seem like a big difference, but to someone who is in the margins, to someone who is struggling, to someone that you might care about, it'll make a big difference for them. So... I didn't vote in the last election, and that was because I had just moved to Australia, and I knew I was going to live here for the next three years, which is the length of a term in New Zealand, and so I felt like I couldn't legitimately have a say in the election of a country where I knew I wasn't going to live for the entire next term of the election. I caught like a lot of flack for that, but I stand by that choice. I think it was, basically to me it was like, people who actually live in that country for that period of time, should have a say. I, as someone who will not be living there, should not have a say. Mm -hmm. There are very limited things that can occur that will affect me. Like, my vote, essentially, I shouldn't have a vote. Like, and that was my personal belief, and, like, certainly some people who live overseas don't feel that way, and I absolutely respect that. I think 
if you are choosing to not vote, you need to firstly be very aware that it is a choice, that you are making a choice. It's not just apathy, it's not just being like, oh, I don't know who to pick, so like, I just, I won't pick. No, you're choosing not to have your say in that election. And I think you need to be aware of why you're making that choice. So for me, it like, it made absolute sense to be like, I'm not going to live there for the next three years. Yeah. Okay, I'll vote in the next election, I guess. Like, yeah. that, that was it. That was it. On a related note, in New Zealand, if you hold a resident visa or if you're a permanent resident and you've lived here for a year or more, you can vote. Nice. It's not just citizens can vote. And I don't think people know that. Okay, so the residents that I know, aka white residents, know this. <laughs> but like when we were residents and the Indian family across the road from us back then, like they were residents. We had all lived in New Zealand for um, two, three years at this point. Um, we had permanent residency. And I don't think those in minority communities know that you can vote. So, hey, anyone who is a New Zealand permanent resident or a resident and you've lived here for a year or more continuously, you should go and enroll and enroll your family and friends because you can vote. And that's really important. Have your say. Have your say. Exercise your civic rights. So in 1993, when New Zealand like fixed its entire electoral system, most prisoners could vote from that point in time. So it only uh, excluded prisoners who were in life sentences, who were in preventative detention, or they had a sentence longer than three years. Mm. Which is like, mm, fair enough. If you killed someone, mm, no. It's very rare that like prisoners in New Zealand are actually sentenced to life sentences. Uh, we can talk about that in another episode I care a lot about guilt and then in 2010 there was an amendment put through that re-disqualified prisoners all prisoners regardless of how long they're serving a sentence if they're in jail at the time of an election so they might be having like 30 days in prison and if they're in prison over the period of the election they cannot vote they are not allowed to vote and this is like the justification of this is essentially that Prisoners have broken a social contract. The social contract being this idea that the state looks after you and you don't break any of the state's laws. As we have covered in this episode, state does a pretty shit job of looking after us sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's also like, the social contract is maybe not real. At no point when we, like, shoot out of our mums do we then, like, sign something being, state will look after me and I won't be a dick about it. And I, as a baby, understand this. There was no no meeting of the minds with regards to this social contract. It's also, like, kind of not totally in line with the New Zealand Bill of Rights, which is not good. Like, the Bill of Rights is quite important because it gives us rights. And certainly, like... The other aspect to this alteration to the law was that it dispropor disproportionately affects Māori people who make up like a huge, they are around 51% of the prison population because of things we've talked about today, like the cycle of poverty, like the lack of access that people have, and because of the historic discrimination against Māori people in New Zealand. <laughs> so... While this law change happened in 2010, in 2014, the law was challenged in the High Court by a number of prisoners. This was sort of founded on the inconsistency with the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act, the inconsistency with the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which does things like protects the rights of prisoners, and inconsistency with the Treaty of Waitangi. And there have been like ongoing discussions surrounding that in around mid-2015, um... There was a 
decision made by a justice in the Auckland High Court that the blanket brown on prisoners voting isn't consistent with the Bill of Rights. As far as I'm aware, like, law still hasn't been changed. Like, it's right. still there. Prisoners still can't vote. Things that disproportionately affect Māori people, but also, like, mean that... And again, like, a lot of what we've talked about in this episode, like, disproportionately affects poor people, right? Like, mm. the people who go to prison are the people who can't pay fines, the people who can't pay bail. And so if they're in prison over the time of election, it's like, well, good luck. I guess you don't get a say in how... The country that made whatever you did illegal or made it so that you're in a position where you needed to do illegal things to survive, you can't have a say in how this country exists. And it's like, okay, cool. This is just another story of history being written by the winners, right? Like, (sighs) those are my feelings about prisons. (laughs) There's a really good white man behind a desk about the New Zealand prison system, which goes much more in depth about, like, how that exists and how New Zealand is quite quick to imprison people particularly Maori people and all of this of course like plays into our discussion before around the benefit as much as we like to pretend that we're a happy-go-lucky fair-go country uh sorry that we're very Australian Australians also do this um <laughs> fair dinkum mate uh, <laughs> New Zealand's still pretty racist oh absolutely yeah <laughs> when you're looking at people in the poverty cycle when you're pe- looking at people below the poverty line when you're looking at people on the unemployment benefit the people that are going to find it hardest, one of the groups of people, because there are many groups of people that find it difficult to get off the benefit, one of those groups is Māori people. Mm. Because New Zealanders are racist. <laughs> they might not be explicitly racist, and they might be good mates to have a beer with if you're also white, but like you're less likely to be hired if you're Māori, like a lot of the time. Mm. And it sucks. But it means that Māori people are more often pushed into the situations where they're like entrenched in poverty, in these cycles that mean they're more likely and like I'm definitely of the opinion that we shouldn't put people in prison for committing purely particularly acquisitive p- crimes when they're below the poverty line mm. and it should be very very difficult to send someone to prison if they're below the poverty line but I mean that's also like not the case in New Zealand so whatever I guess yeah New Zealanders really hate prisoners um I think it was one of the the statistics that was mentioned in that white man behind a desk episode for those listening who don't know white man behind a desk is I think a YouTube series by Robbie Nicol and who are the two writers they've changed between the first and second series so there are writers (laughs) somewhere in Wellington in a shed (laughs) It seems like, um, <laughs> but it's it's definitely worth watching because, I mean, he's been described as New Zealand's John Oliver. Eh, sure, I guess, but it's it's a in depth look at topics in New Zealand that don't really get that treatment here. So he looks at things like the Auckland housing market. He looks at topics like the prison population, and he looks at topics like trade. What is trade? How is it good for us? What kind of um, stance should we be taking on trade and things like that? And he he does it in a comedic way. And yeah, it's it's definitely worth watching. But I think one of the statistics he gave in the prison episode was that New Zealanders, we really wanted to punish prisoners. I think a big tie-in theme for all of the gross stuff that's happening is dehumanization like when we talk about the deserving and undeserving poor when we talk about prisoners when we talk about homeless it's a lot of dehumanization it is looking at someone and saying you have given up the right to be a person a human with full rights because you did xyz it makes no sense but it happens and we do it every day yeah 
What a great note to end on. <laughs> so, in conclusion, make sure you're enrolled to vote. Enrollment closes August 23rd. So that's in a couple of days, depending on when you're listening. Enroll now. Think about what matters to you. I'm sure there's listeners out there who will completely disagree with everything that we've talked about today. And that's cool, but really care and think about what you prioritize, what you want from your country and what you want your country to look like. Think about the different people and the different parties that might make that work for you. And come September, go out and cast your vote. And look, if you decide that that is David Seymour or that's Winston Peters or that is Colin Craig, it's better for you to vote because I can want the kind of government that I want, but more than anything, I want a representative democracy. A lot of people underlying it all, like while they prefer the party they like the most to be in power, they want a representative democracy as well. So I don't give a shit who you vote for, just vote. To it. Hashtag change so, the government. Yeah, nope, 2020. So that's been things of interest. We've talked a lot about how shitty we are to poor people all the time and how bad the poverty line is. We've talked a lot about voting and different voting systems. And we've talked about how Australian politics is fucked. <laughs> it's been a good episode, I think, Serena. This has been really fun. It's always fun. Yeah, it's always fun. I, I enjoy our conversations. As usual, uh, if you also think it's been fun, uh, please leave us a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. Leave us some stars. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. Don't tell us who you voted for. I think that's illegal. I think it's illegal for us to ask people to tell us who they voted for. Because we can't know if they're lying if they tell us. Leave us a review on iTunes. <laughs> Follow us on Twitter. We're Casting Interest. We're on Facebook at Things of Interest, and you can email us, uh, castinginterest at gmail.com. I've been Sophia France. And I'm Serena Chen. And as always, stay interesting.